For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How is everybody? I can't wait to bring you this week's interview with my friend Paul Dillinger. Now, Paul has a very fancy job title. He is Vice President of Global Product Innovation at Levi's. And of course, we talk all about that, about their tech innovations, particularly around wearables and their collab with Google. And by the way, since this was recorded, Google's Jacquard platform has been rolled out with Adidas, as well as Levi's and the Saint Laurent backpack that Paul mentions. So there you go. All right. But... This episode is not really about brands and product. Paul is just an amazing conversationalist. And that's why I wanted to talk with him. I titled this episode Fashion Philosophy, because really it's about the meaning of clothes and the search for meaning. It's about what fashion says about our society, about us and how we use it and where it's headed. So we talk about fashion as a language of communication. But we also get into art and photography. He tells them amazing stories. We talk about playing piano, making Muppet puppets as a child. <laughs> uh-huh. Paul's first fashion design foray was outfitting Miss Piggy. <laughs> oh, I love it. Anyway, before we dive in, I just wanted to say a special thank you to everyone who rates and reviews the podcast in Apple. It really helps other people find us. I haven't worked out how to sort of get back to you or even see who's done it. I don't think there is a way to contact reviewers, but I just want to say that I do see them and I feel very, very grateful for your engagement. I always wish I could write back and say thank you. So I thought I might say thank you to a few people here. There was a a lovely one the other day from P. Chakma. It said, the most inspiring podcast out there. It talked about a multitude of perspectives and said, truly the best knowledge bank if you want to learn about the entire system. That just made my day. Thank you. And thank you to Edward Hollingsworth, who wrote a great variety of guests and insights to help level up your ethical fashion knowledge. I love that too. And just one more. Thank you to all plants, big and small, who said, one of the best for sustainable chat. I love it. Go on, leave me a nice review. It does help others find us. Okay, let's get to this week's interview with the amazing Paul Dillinger. Paul Dillinger, I'm so excited. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we were able to find this time. This is a delight. We're going to talk about wearable tech, about the future of fashion, about sustainability, of course, but... Paul, I want to get into the deep questions. I had this idea that you were somewhat of a philosopher of fashion. Mm -hmm. And before we pressed record, you made reference to your philosophy lecturer Mm -hmm. at university. Yes, the philosophy of ethics. That was the the, the course that interested me most, yes. So So what did he study? What did I study broadly? I studied fashion design, but I studied at a university that was... um, a liberal arts university. So taking courses like philosophy, literature physics, all of those things were part of the course. And so the best course I took was the philosophy of ethics. Get out. Yeah. I just don't think people associate those things, those deep things with fashion, although yeah. they should. I chose the university because of its seated a fashion program in the context of a, of a broader liberal arts education. My parents were pretty adamant that I not go to a conservatory and art school. So I went to a, a proper university and then just happened to guide myself into the fashion program. Yeah. We're going to get into all of that, mm-hmm. but I want to start with a big question. Okay. And that is, what is fashion for? Oh, goodness. 
If you look at, back at 19th century German philosophers who were first studying fashion in the context of sociology, it was for features like protection, modesty, or inversely, uh, uh, seduction, and um, ritual signification. So ritual class had special fashion objects to designate their yeah. status. When you look at, say, 20th century French semiologists like uh, Saussure or Roland Barthes, and you start to examine the development of fashion as a system of communication, look at writings like The Language of Fashion or The Fashion System from Roland Barthes, you start to recognize that evolving in past simply modesty, protection, and adornment into the space of language, the space of communication. Uh, the vestimentary systems are the systems by which we communicate to the world our identity, either an aspirational identity, a false identity, who we'd like to be, who we pretend to be. Let's pause and just think about that. It's so interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about fashion as crafting an identity, yeah. sometimes it is fake. Yeah. Oh, it's... Sometimes it's the armour with which we dress ourselves it's so absolutely. that we can pretend to be more confident than we are or... Yeah. I think that some of the most interesting early visuals to describe this phenomenon are um, occupational degenerotypes. So the... What? 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 Okay. Occupational degenerotypes, tin types. Often in the early days of photography, when people would sit for portrait when they weren't wealthy fashion plates fashion, well it's they would dress in all of the trappings of their job of their of their profession so like a chimney sweep would stand there in his chimney sweep uniform with his brush and his broom and all of the different accoutrements and stand for a portrait and he would craft identity based on his profession it's called occupational degenerotypes but we, when I said fashion plates that's the next iteration the next isn't it yeah. which is whereby I guess the trends of the day were yes. disseminated through these plates yes. or these daguerreotypes yes, yes. so occupational daguerreotypes oh, yes. so it was basically giving information to people that these are the parts of your uniform that will construct your visual identity this intentional to what you do. Yeah, intentionally pulling together the systems of communication that said, this is who I am, and who I am is my job. And if you look into at, um, Irving Penn's Small Trades, where he did the same exercise, but um, treated it as a... I've never a, seen that. Oh, you should really look at it. It's a huge book, a series that he did over many, many years in, in New York and in London and Paris. And what did he photograph? You know, a, a vitrinier from the 6th arrondissement, someone whose job it was to sell panels for glass windows, right? And what My are... My jaws dropped. Yeah, and, and, or like a madam, right? Or, again, a chimney sweep, mm. or a mailman, or, you know, all of these small trades. But he treated them with the same dignity as an amazing fashion photo session and with the, you know the full drop and the full lighting and full Irving Penn treatment and it's some of the most amazing photographs that pick up on that tradition of the occupational daguerreotype and really give you an understanding of what dress can do in terms of communicating identity when it's handled with a degree of, of uh, sensitivity and consciousness. So now if we fast forward to what fashion is for today, mm -hmm. it still has these deep and meaningful associations. We still dress in order to display our identity, whether it is about our job or where we want to see ourselves in the world. But fashion's also huge commerce. I mean, right. fashion is big business. Right. You work for Levi's. Yeah. That's big business. Yeah. What is fashion for outside of those, I guess, deep realms of identity What does it mean when you, can, when you can buy a complete new identity for $30? Right? When it's not um, an investment in this crafted identity, but really a divestment of all objective value so that it's simply like, oh, I have an idea about who I want to be for a moment. And you can go out and actually purchase top to bottom a whole new identity, be it true or false, aspirational or occupational, and, and throw it on. And, and how cheap or expensive is our sense of self when the methods by which we craft identity are so cheap? So available. Yeah. 
yeah. God. But when I think about what fashion's for, I think it's for joy. Mm-hmm. It's for identity. It's for tribe. It's for finding a place within mm-hmm. the world. It's business, so it's for helping economic advancement if we're paying a decent mm-hmm. wage. Mm-hmm. It's also what employs both of us. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. I mean, take away the system and where are we? So it's with the system and I, I like to think that I still have a job hemming people's pants and you know, <laughs> handy with the needle and thread. So I, you know, I have a place in that post-zombie apocalypse society. I can throw a frock together pretty handily. You can pretty still handily. hem yeah. a pair of pants. But you do have a lofty job title and I that do. is <laughs> Vice President of Global Product Innovation at Levi's. Yes. What does that mean, Paul? What do you actually do? I'm a fashion designer with the privilege of working outside of the six-month season. I try to identify spaces where the fashion industry needs change or wants change, generally needs change, (laughs) but big change. And I get to work on the the two, three, five, or ten-year projects that will eventually manifest as shifts in the industrial context. So I get to imagine what jeans wear 2050 might be like, what would need to be true for us to be successful. My job is having the privilege as a fashion designer to work outside of that six-month fashion cycle. So taking the creative process and the joy of imagining alternatives and not having to execute them in six months, but rather putting that creative intention towards challenges that might take six years, five years, three years, whatever. What would need to be true for the industry to be more sustainable? What would need to be true for the industry to be more connected? What would need to be true for the industry to be more healthy or, or to exist as a positive influence in global culture and and um, environment rather than right what it is right now, which is a fundamentally a tax on, on global environment. God. Yeah. That's a damning indictment of what fashion mm-hmm. is now. Well, it's many things. It is joyful. It, do, it is a mechanism by which we present hopefully our best and happiest selves to the world. But too often, it's also the mechanism that erodes self-esteem, undermines personal confidence, draws very sharp class divisions that unnecessarily. Too often, it's the tool by which value is extracted from one region and deposited in another at an unfair uh, exchange rate. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of good things, good features. There, there's a global good value. There's also global negative value. Like we have to be mindful of both. And, and then I work with a company that's invested in creating a position for someone to be in charge of, or someone to be mindful of that and, and seek to create a, a change. It's so interesting. Your role is not specifically one around sustainability, but you are thinking about that. You're obviously thinking about tech when you consider innovation. <laughs> Let's talk about the jacket, because right, right. <laughs> about, I don't know, more than a year ago now, you demonstrated Levi's commuter trucker jacket to me in mm-hmm. LA. Mm-hmm. I was with my friend Patrick Duffy and we were dancing. Yes. Why were we dancing? We're dancing because you could DJ from the cuff of your coat, <laughs> right? The, basically, there's, there's all these delightful features on a cell phone. You, know, the build, you, can, you can access the world of music from your cell phone. In order to do that, you have to pause your life and insert between your face and the face of your friend this sort of imposed terminal for computing, which right now is the phone. It used to be a, a desktop, there was a laptop, and now it's, it's quite small. But let's not, let's not forget that the, that rectangular imposition is an, unna- is an unnatural interface. You're pausing to engage in terminal computing. The opportunity for you to just live your life, engage in ambient computing, to me, is a far more attractive way of living. So if you like, don't like this track, you know, just a tap, tap, brush on your cuff to get to the next track. Oh, I love this track. What is it? I don't remember. Tap, tap, swipe up. 
we'll help you, we'll bookmark that URL and you can go back and you can find it and add it to a playlist later. Like, so hang on a minute, you say tap tap on your cuff, you're talking about the jacquard. What mm-hmm. does it do and what is it? So um, about five years ago, I started conversations with some geniuses at Mountain View at the Google Advanced Technologies and Projects Group. They had developed a capacitive yarn, a yarn that was able to sense electromagnetic, electromagnetic field off of your finger. And by running several of those yarns across the, the warp of the fabric, the, the crossways fill yarns of a fabric, and then some across the, uh, the weft of the fabric, you were able to create um, a grid not unlike the, the sensitivity grid on the surface of a phone. So you could start using any textile as a computing surface like the surface of your phone. What is that yarn you describe it as made of? Uh, it is made of a magical secret um, metal alloy that we don't discuss the exact composition of. That would be to, that would be, um, to Google, I think, to, to divulge the exact composition of the yarn. But it took quite a long time to figure out the exact... It's wire, but it's multiple wires that are braided in a very special configuration. We you went, can wash it. You can wash it. And uh, the right technology was found. It already existed in an amazing kimono yarn spinning facility on the slopes of Mount Fuji. Really? The technology existed. It just needed to be adapted to create this amazing special yarn for Jacquard. By running um, a bunch of these yarns in sort of parallel with spaces in between, each yarn being able to sense the touch of the finger, that meant that by swiping across this alignment of parallel yarns, a little tiny computer inside the jacket cuff was able to, to sense the cadence of your fingers moving across one way or across another way, or tapping, it can sense firmness or, or pressure. And, started to, and we created the ability to recognize these gestures as specific digital inputs. Uh, that a gesture was able to be translated into meaning and that meaning was able to prompt the phone through a Bluetooth connection from jacket to phone, prompt the phone to do certain certain tasks. So what are the possibilities? I mean, you can call an Uber with this coat. You can't necessarily call the Uber. What, now, what? What, the, what the coat can do, though, is once you've called your Uber, instead of milling around the foyer of your friend's apartment after the, the, the dinner has been concluded, instead of you and all your friends staring like zombies and wandering around the foyer looking at your phone, your phone's in your pocket, you're making eye contact, graciously thanking your host for an amazing dinner, and when your car starts to get closer, you'll get a light on your cuff saying your car's a minute away. When your car's here, your cuff vibrates just a little bit, an imperceptible vibration that only you can feel. So you're not breaking eye contact to stare at this phone. You're, you're just making eye contact with your host to say goodnight. And when the car does arrive, if the vibration does happen, a swipe up against the cuff will, will compel your phone to actually announce the name of the driver and the make of the car. So at no point are you having to drag your phone back out. You're able to be a human at the end of the night instead of this sort of, this sort of mindless phone staring zombie. You're looking at all of this, or it sounds as if you are, as ways in which we might live better lives or we might operate in a way that makes us happier or I don't know you're sort of problem solving with this rather than looking at it as a gimmick like mm. hooray you can be your own DJ which I liked <laughs> well I, I think well and also I, I think you know we've gotten feedback from our consumers that the favorite function is being able to control control music from the cuff of their, their jacket but I think the internet of things as an idea the, the activation of objects as conduits for digital or ambient computing is a really great idea and most of those ideas so far end up in the back of a sock drawer 
they're not charged, they weren't sufficiently useful to warrant the integration into, into people's lives. Let me just hold you back there. Mm -hmm. I think people are confused by the phrase, the Internet of Things. I'm writing a new book about the future of fashion. I had to read so deeply around mm -hmm. this because it's a bit alien to the way that I think about mm -hmm. the world. I'm, an, I'm a fashion Luddite. But just one sentence to explain what the Internet of Things is. I would describe it as distributing all of the, the value of digital connectivity away from centralized terminal computing and in, in distributing it more broadly to the things that surround our lives to create a, a situation of ambient computing. They talk to one another. Yes, they talk to one another. And the idea is that there's no single device or terminal that you have to sit at in order to engage with a connected world, that everything is somehow connected. So it could be that your light switches in your house can turn themselves off and then talk to your fridge but leave that on or whatever it is. Yes. How far are we away from, and I know that you perhaps don't know, but... What is the general thinking around how far away we are from the IoT being so far advanced that, in fact, these things cease to be novel and gimmicky and become the way we operate in the world? Well, I mean, that is that is why version two of this Google Project Jacquard Levi's collaboration is so exciting to me. We have moved past the sense that the jacket was designed around the technology. The jacket is just the Levi's trucker jacket, most successful outerwear design in human history, <laughs> designed 53 years ago and still going strong. It has simply been made a, a little bit better. It doesn't do everything. It does the things you might want it to do for those moments in your life when you're wearing a jean jacket. When you come home and you take off your jean jacket and you maybe want to turn the TV on and dim the lights, perhaps that's not the jean jacket's job. Perhaps that's the throw pillow's job. Perhaps that's the sofa's job or I some other object. I love that you're thinking, what is the job of the jean jacket? The jean jacket is like, close your eyes and think about this moment when you're throwing your jean jacket on and walking out the door. There are a few things that you need. You don't need everything. You don't need all the apps that you have access to on your phone. But you might want to get directions. You might want to know when your car is coming. You might want to, you might want a quick recap of the daily news, the weather. You might want to you may say, "Hey, what's my next appointment? Where is it? How far away am I?" Right. But then this comes back to my original question of what is fashion for? Because what fashion was for in 1890 is a very different story to mm -hmm. what fashion could be for yeah. tomorrow, right? And is for today, right? So, without asking myself, without putting the those sort of speculative conjectural assessments of what fashion is, I simply know that everyone kind of likes a jean jacket. So what if the jean jacket can just get a little friendlier, do a little bit more, be a little bit better? We started, like, why jean jacket? Well, we started by asking the question of a group of consumers, is there a garment in your wardrobe that you wear three days a week or more? Because... Well, we know it's denim, because we know that, I mean, I forget where the origins of this stack come from. Actually, I think that I quoted them in Wardrobe Crisis, my book about all of this, and I think that they come from a study that happened in 2009 by two British researchers who had gone to 100 cities around the world and then just counted how many people were wearing jeans at any given moment mm -hmm. and then figured out that roughly it was about half of them. Right. So half the world's wearing jeans, they surmise. Right, so why not work there? Why invent a new thing? If the, what, if the Internet of Things is only going to be successful if we're making the things we already know and love, a little better versus the introduction of a new thing that might not naturally have a place in our life. And that's what populates the back of my sock drawer, are these things that seemed like good ideas, that delivered a value, but they, because they weren't a thing that was naturally welcome in my life, the way that a jean jacket is, they didn't get the use, they didn't get the play. This thing, we know people love this jacket, it's proven, so let's make the jacket a little better. Let's just talk briefly about Google. You've <laughs> collaborated with Google on this. For listeners who are wondering what Google has to do with fashion, 
you might have heard of Maria McClay. She is the head of luxury fashion at Google, and she's the one who collaborated with Stella McCartney on a recent project to basically look at Google data and big data and then try and apply that to a sustainability question. So Google's stepping into the fashion space with big data. Mm-hmm. With what else? I mean, my question to you is why collaborate with Google and why is Google so interested in operating in the fashion space? I think what Google recognizes is that there is a large economy for the purchase of um, objects of fashion. And if Google really wants to realize this goal of Internet of Things and if wearable technology seems to be one direction it could go in, though I think wearable technology is a challenging and fairly loaded phrase, that um, the people who are best equipped to make things and reinvent the way they make things frequently are in the fashion space or the fashion accessories, beauty space. What's really interesting now is we're not the only people working on this. We've been working with them for years on this, but they, Google also just uh, released their partnership with Saint Laurent on a connected backpack. Right. So the Google Jacquard platform um, is now available in two products, and the abilities that are developed for these two different, very distinct consumer groups are cross-deployable on one another's jacket. Google is not interested in enabling Levi's to make a connected jacket. Google is interested in enabling this industry to make connected product. The modularity, the transferability of the technology in version two versus version one, which version one was fundamentally designed for a Levi's product. Version two is Levi's using a platform and a system that has been designed for deployability in a broad range of products. So this backpack will do a similar thing? It will do similar things and then imagine partner three and partner four coming online. Each of them will have a different take on what their consumer needs. Those needs will be expressed in digital value that will be cross-deployable across all sorts of product categories. You mentioned before wearable tech being a phrase that maybe sends shivers down the spines of some. I Mm -hmm. think that in the past it has been you said loaded, but it's associated with gimmickry and mm-hmm. stupid and stupidness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking about Google Glass. Got mm-hmm. anything to say about that? Because that was a big failure, wasn't it? I think what, what, no, I think it was a tremendous opportunity to learn that perhaps people don't shop sunglasses at the Google store. Perhaps people oh. want to go to a Luxottica brand, or perhaps they want to go to Ray-Ban. The idea is the thing must lead. And so the thing in this, in my case, is a Levi's jean jacket. The thing from Saint Laurent is going to be a backpack, but wearable tech is, wearability is modifying the word technology, a tech-enabled object of fashion. That's what we want to go for. Not ah. an, not the, an added gadget or gimmick, yes. but simply the, um, the investing of digital value in a thing that already exists within the fashion space. And I think that's, not to, to put too much time on discussing yeah. the Google Glass, yeah. I think that was, a, that was an object created to host technology, whereas a backpack from Saint Laurent or a jean jacket from Levi's. These are objects that already exist because of their value. Now we're just simply improving and investing uh, digital capabilities. That makes sense. Okay, I want to talk about waste. You might mm-hmm. think that is a strange jump, but it's not because mm-hmm. when we're looking at built-in obsolescence and on and at waste in general, the tech space isn't even better than the fashion space. And Paul, I know that mm-hmm. you as I am, are very worried about waste in fashion. But I just want to share some stuff around how much e-waste there is in the world. Akim Steiner, who is the executive director of the UN Environment Programme, spoke of a, and I quote, tsunami of e-waste rolling around the world and that it's potentially hazardous to people in the environment. E-waste represents 2% of America's trash in landfills, but it equals 70% of overall toxic waste. That's amazing. 20 to 50 million metric tons of e-waste are disposed of worldwide every year. So that's across the whole tech space. But we know that 
it's not just fast fashion that has built-in obsolescence. What's your take on how we can tackle both those things and how we're not making even more waste by adding tech to wearables? Right. No, it's, that's why I appreciate Levi's was able to be the founding partner and continues to be a partner with Google on this because we get to bring a certain ethic of durability and an expectation of lasting value to the project. When we launched this project, uh, the version one was launched in uh, fall of 2017. Uh, spring 2017 did not see a new jacket. It saw the creation of new abilities that enhanced the existing set of abilities. You're updating the system, not updating the, the system, Not the hardware. The hardware stayed the same and simply improved. And six months later, we sustained this promise of the consumer of an evolving jacket and gave out new abilities. And they were free of charge, pushed out there simply to say, and they got a, people who owned it got a push notification in the morning that said, oh, check your jacket. It got better overnight. Now, that is absolutely the opposite ethic of the conventional fashion system, which generally seeks to re-offer a similar but slightly different Object, uh, and a marketing strategy that goes with it uh, six months later to convince you to buy a new thing. The new system offers oh, it's a brand new um, user experience, brand new interface design, a bunch of new abilities, including the ability to pre-program questions that go directly to the cloud to, the, to Google Assistant. You know, a tap on your jacket will can if you if you've pre-programmed the question, tell you exactly what your next appointment is, how far away, and when you need to leave to get there. Now, those are all new abilities that have been designed for version two of the jacket. They will all be automatically uploaded to version one of the jacket. No one who has the first version of the tech is going to be forced out. But isn't someone upstairs, you're upstairs as vice president, <laughs> but are not people in the C-suite in your company as they would be in other companies saying, come on, Paul, though, we want to sell new jackets. I'm delighted to expand the access to Google Project Card by, with the Levi's collaboration from just the U.S. market. We're opening in eight markets now. We're, we're expanding this to make it a global offering. The opportunity for growth is there. What we're right now, we're in a, in a stage where we are proving the viability of a speculative design exercise, and we're doing it in a pretty good-looking way. Like That's an achievement in and of itself. I think that you know the connected jacket is not overtaking the 501 in terms of the scale with respect to our total business. In fairness, I was leading you through the conversation that you knew we were going to have, which was about um, growth and unlimited growth on a finite planet. And I know that that's perhaps not specifically related to the commuter trucker jacquard story. However, Paul, you have been outspoken in Mm -hmm. this. At the Copenhagen Fashion Summit in 2018, you and I were both there. You told the audience during a panel session, if six out of every ten garments produced end up in landfill within the year... Should we have made those six? Mm-hmm. Now, you were referring to a study that shows just how much waste we sent to landfill. Mm-hmm. Right. But that question about if we know we're wasting it, should we even make it, is the one that no one wants to broach. It is. And if we invert that challenge to the designers and say, yes, we can all sit around and decry the horror of the fast fashion and the race to the bottom, but what... what behaviors or what strategies are we as designers taking to make sure that we have invested such novel and interesting value in the four that survive that they are, that the ones we've designed are the four like you know this race to the bottom is a problem and the six out of ten is a huge problem the question is what have I done to make sure that I'm designing for those attributes and qualities of lasting value that are going to be the ones that are going to demonstrate the long life in the closet versus participating in the the sugar high cheap thrill of the six that are bought and then discarded that's the that's the challenge can we design for long-term ownership and can that mean can we somehow make it worth the while of the consumer to own it for longer and care for it better 
I'm going to quote yourself back at you. This uh-huh. was from an interview you did with the first company a couple of years ago. You mm-hmm. said, in my wildest dreams, we'd be helping to cultivate a Levi's customer who values durability and demonstrates a real attachment to an object. We'd be nurturing a person who doesn't purchase because of immediate seasonal change, but who purchases for lasting value. Mm-hmm. You're obsessed with durability and you want to obviously make the thing that lasts. Mm-hmm. Yes. But... I want to steer you back to that original point of why are we making those extra six things that we know are going to be chucked out out of ten? Yes, everyone wants to make the thing that lasts. They want to make the good four. But why don't we as the broader fashion community question more the system that allows us to make those Mm -hmm. lesser value garments that we know are going to end up in the tip? Right, because the second portion of the quote of mine from the stage at Copenhagen was, and how much better could the four have been if the six were never made? Right? If we had reinvested all the material value and labor value and marketing value and everything of the six and invested in the four, then you'd have product worth spending more for. I believe that we should be designing and making to the four. I mean, geez, if we just made five out of ten, we'd still be a, an industry of 20% waste. Like, and that's, that's a frightening truth. So to some extent, there is an opportunity for designers to design better, to be mindful of design for lasting value versus design for immediate or trend value. There are consumers who might want to practice this, but yes, to think that the market system, that the capitalist system is going to somehow reward companies for constraining their growth or somehow is going to you know, cultivate consumers who would act against their own personal self-interest and start spending more for things that are, that are perhaps made better. Those are both two unlikely scenarios. There is a third constituency here that I believe we have to start considering, which is governments. Uh, there is a governance structure that should discourage the trade in products that can't be recycled, trade in products that have outsized environmental footprints. There should be a regular co- regulatory construct in place to encourage responsible consumption and responsible production. So you would say that we can't change the system without regulation stepping in to say, actually, to curb our excess and our wastefulness? I think um, uh, a single mother of two staring down a conscience, an ethically made t-shirt for $40 and looking one aisle over at a two-pack of t-shirts for $5 or $10 has an obligation to save money to invest in healthy calories for her children. I don't believe that we need to put this burden on the consumer exclusively. I don't believe that any company, I I can't fault a company for recognizing that 100% pivot to true to sustainable manufacturing practices and the implications on bottom line that that represents. I don't think we can punish companies for recognizing that that would put them at a such severe um, competitive disadvantage that they would possibly risk going out of business. I think we need a level playing field, and I think that there's one way to get that level playing field, and it's through enlightened regulatory action. Do you think there are more conversations happening in companies about potentially rethinking growth? I fear that one of the reasons this conversation around the circular economy has such appeal is that a cursory reading in the C-suite appears that we're being offered a system for unconstrained growth without the the guilt of impact. If we just turn circular, if we start feeding these materials back into the loop, therefore designing our waste, and we're fine. We can just keep going. Sure. and it, Make uh, more and more. Make even more. Right. And boy, <laughs> does that sound easy and fun. Now, um, and I think the it exposes itself as, as a false notion, just in the, in the language we used to describe it. We describe a circular economy. 
we need to start by imagining and designing and engineering a robust and viable circular industrial ecology. And then once that's working, pull back, pause and say, is a viable economy emerging from that circular ecology? So what do you mean by circular ecology? I'd say spend what needs to be spent on product that is made from as much recycled second generation material content as possible, design it in a way that it can be recovered and reused and offer it at an appropriate price to the consumer with all the constraints involved. Perhaps you can't have stretch in your jeans. That product is made legitimately within the constraints of, of a circular industrial ecology. And then pause and see how that input in the system works. Is there a market for it? Are people responding to it? Is it greeted positively, favorably, or is it rejected? And if it's rejected, study why it's rejected. Study why that non-stretch, recovered, recycled gene that's somehow different than the product we're most familiar with and somehow more expensive. Understand why it's being rejected and start your to construct your theories about a a, a circular economy from those realities, from the learnings of that exercise, but to presuppose a viable economy out of a system that doesn't exist yet. I mean, sciences that are still being developed and and are still a few years away from commercial. I think that's a carp for the horse thinking. You've also said that you think that that way of thinking would also exercise its own constraints and may well regulate the exponential growth of the market anyway. Right. There are, you know, if you were a strict reading of Bill McDonough's amazing book, Cradle to Cradle, and producing garments made out of all like materials that involves a cellulosic, probably cotton thread. Well, there are certain finishes in denim that you cannot apply to a cotton thread right now. The, co- the strength of the cotton thread can't hold up to some of the chemistries and aggressive mechanical processes that are used to create these broad assortments of, of denim colors from so light to dark. So it might actually result in us making less if we were to Absolutely. try to strictly adhere to this stuff. Yeah. I watched a talk you gave at the Aspen Institute when you spoke the unspeakable and you said, what if brands produced and sold less? But then you said that as a designer, you've been able to get away with, and I quote, the incendiary anti-capitalist rhetoric you enjoy. You're only half joking. (laughs) What do I know? I'm just a designer. (laughs) All right. How did you become a designer? I know that you've spent a long years in the industry. You worked briefly at DKNY. You Mm -hmm. went to Calvin Klein. Where did you begin? You said you studied fashion with a philosophy angle. Yeah. What drove you as a kid? I grew up in the woods. I grew up deep in the woods near Mount Rainier in the northwest of the United States in Washington State with a deep appreciation for nature and a love of costuming my puppets, right? What? I would make, I would, it was early days of the Muppet show and I would make, we, me and my sisters would, would make little versions of the Muppets and all I was doing is re, re, what? Sew them? Uh, no, we would make them out of paper bags, but I would make, I don't know how many Miss Piggies I'd have because I would keep doing new dresses for her over and over and over again. This is little Paul. I saw Willie Smith on the Donahue show when I was 12 years old. Willie Smith was a designer in the 80s in New York and I saw my first fashion show when I was 12 on TV and I was like mom I want to do that so 16 years old is when I got my first sewing machine taught myself pattern making and but looking for uh, a university that would foster deep critical thinking and give me the skill set to become a fashion designer but it was the making that drove you it was it was the fabric it was a love of fabric and color and also the complexity of um, the spatial geometries and how to realize volumetric forms from planar goods you know like the the complexities of pattern making really delighted me were you bookish yeah what did you read i mean were you thinking of being a scientist as well well there was that option and i was thinking of pursuing that but i was also um 
deeply into music. I was piano lessons, French horn lessons, composition. My parents may not have known I was not a music major until they got to graduation because I was, I mean, they took me to see Amadeus when I was in third grade. And, and that film is the best film. It's I've film amazing. But I've still it, never gotten over that film. We'll share a link. It's just brilliant. It's brilliant. But then I saw it. I'm like, well, shit, I'm not, I'm never going to be you that You don't want to be Salieri. Well, I don't want to be Salieri. And I, could, I said, I'm not, I'm not as good as Mozart at this music thing. Maybe there's something else I'm good at. And no, seriously, did Mozart put you off because he was too genius? As yep. a writer, Mozart haunts me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm only just over it, actually, at the ripe old age of... <clears throat> mm-hmm. But watching the genius, real genius, or learning about real genius, it puts you off because you think, well, if you can't be a genius, why bother? Yes, and, but, but also, that's exactly what <laughs> happened to me with music. Genius, Paul. I see the genius in you. But what I said, not to presume that I'm a Mozart-level genius at anything, what I knew was that I wasn't that good at music. I wasn't as good as he was at music, but I didn't want to disappoint my parents by stopping it, so I pretended to be good at music all the way through, at secretly fostering this interest in fashion, hoping that that was the thing for me. What did you want to do with fashion, though, when you were, say, in your 20s? I mean, you worked commercially, but yeah, what did you dream of? I, I, I mean, I dreamt of what... It was about the, the beauty of the runway presentation. The, the evolution of my thinking around fashion... There was a point in time when I worked for a major New York fashion label doing their jeans, and I left that for five years, and then I returned five years later to doing the same product category for a different major New York label. And so, like, they had the same buyers from a major New York department store cutting the same fits on the same exact fabrics from the same mill, being made at the same factory, and being sold at the same price points. So two brands, five years apart, were, had essentially the same product offerings. Were you each gutted? Brand. But what I realized, but then what I saw was but that you, you had margin like, expectations that were sharper, chargeback expectations that were meaner-spirited, and the only dial... That could, that could deliver the, on those was wage. And I recognized that five years on in the industry, nothing had changed except someone was getting gouged a little sharper deep in the supply chain. And I was so just, it was disillusioning and I was gutted. And You had a sustainability epiphany. Yeah, a sustainability epiphany. Or an ethics epiphany. It, it, was, it was recognizing, it was like, you know, if you turn the heat up on, on a lobster in a pot, it's not going to recognize that it's boiling to death, right? But this was me jumping out and jumping back in and being, oh my God, the temperature has changed quite a lot. What it was is the, the margin expectations were just that much sharper. And the, the only pressure thing, on making things cheaper. Right. And squeezing the, the worker. It, it was the squeeze on the worker that made me say, I can't do this. And I stopped, I quit fashion, I became an educator. I've joined the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis. And once I started to realign my career around values, a whole series of no's became yeses. I was, you know, I was working in, in academia and suddenly got this call from Levi Strauss and Company in San Francisco offering me the most, giving me the most amazing job opportunity I could imagine. They allowed you or encouraged you to continue to teach. Yes. You've been there for more than eight years now. Yeah. Um, where, where do you teach now? When I have the opportunity to teach, it's at um, California College of the Arts. We have done sponsored studios by Levi's at Rhode Island School of Design, and I still engage sometimes with um, Washington University in St. Louis. I'm also on the board of Remake, which is an organization that um, provides advocacy, and it's this amazing organization that, that advocates for the women in the supply chain that are often forgotten, the people who actually make the clothes, that the form of advocacy that they take is often going and making, taking fashion students on 
journeys to the countries where the clothes that they design are going to be made, and that these young women from fashion school, from Parsons and from CCA, are being introduced to women their age that work in factories and have a life of factory work ahead of them. And it creates a component of empathy in the design process for young designers. It's also used as an educational tool for design schools across the country. And it's a really important organization, and, and that's where I get to still engage with, with education. It's not explicitly through an academic appointment anymore. I, my, I've gotten a little busy for that, but um, it's, it still keeps me in touch with the students. Let's finish talking about the future of fashion because mm-hmm. students are the future of fashion. Mm-hmm. I just want to quote yourself one more time back oh, at you. <laughs> this is from a speech that you gave at FIT and you were talking about what motivates young designers today and what might motivate them. But you did say that you have been concerned that you still speak to some students who are motivated by what you described the champagne runways and Rachel Zoe as being the primary motivator. Not to denigrate Rachel Zoe, but you know, talking about this idea that kids enter fashion because they think it's going to be highly glamorous, they'll be on the telly, they get to dress famous people. What do you hope will motivate the next wave of students, if not that? And what's wrong with that? I think um, there's a cultural misunderstanding of the role of the designer as an auteur, as an artist, as a big, larger-than-life personality, forgetting that clothing is fundamentally a tool of service. And I would love for um, education of young designers to pivot towards their understanding of their role in society, an obligation to do good work that doesn't harm the environment, good work that doesn't degrade the esteem of the consumer, to participate in marketing strategies and manufacturing scenarios that are uh, productive and not destructive. I would love every young designer to pause and consider sort of an ethical construct for their work. I'd, I would love for education, a designer to include signing up for, you know, uh, something like the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take. I mean, I vow to design quality, durable product that will make the wearer feel good. I promise not to use fresh water unless it falls from the sky. I promise not to pollute. I promise not to use fossil fuels. I promise to make product that is recyclable. I promise to use recycled materials. I promise to respect the consumer, to protect the workers, and I promise to be honest and transparent. That's what I would like education for fashion designers to look like going forward. And that is not necessarily consistent with the fashion paradigm as we understand it right now. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne.
Because I love you Because I love you 